and welcome to Historical Frictions, a historical fiction podcast where we delve into the nitty gritty of history, fiction and everything in between. I'm Tess and I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Hilary and Lachlan. Hello. Hi. Today we are discussing our next book. This was my turn and I've reread People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks. But before we get into all that, how are you both? I'm good. Yeah. Been working away on my thesis, which has been good. Making some progress. Yay! <laughs> how about yeah. you, Lucky? Yeah. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good as well. Just doing a lot of marking lately. It's mid-semester break now, so no teaching, but being taken over by marking. I think I'm about 70 essays down now. So. Oh. But yeah, haven't touched my thesis in a while. <laughs> so looking forward to getting back to that at some point. How are you, Tess? I'm good. I'm no longer at my middle-of-the-night conference, which I was doing last week. <laughs> This week's been nice. <laughs> Sleeping the whole night through, mostly. That's <laughs> um, good. Nice. But yeah, I'm good. I'm working on my thesis still. That's the same. <laughs> um, on a book chapter, finishing that up. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, cool. excellent. I also should mention as well that we do have our Greatest Showman episode out now as well. It was our bonus episode for last month. So have a listen to that if you haven't already and want to hear us get very mad about the greatest showman. <laughs> yeah, a lot of feelings were had. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we might as well just get down to it. Yeah, so Tess, this week you read The People of the Book, or you reread it because you've already read it uh, once before. So did you like it? Yes, I did. I do like it. This is going to be um, a slightly weird episode because I, I do like it, but I'm probably mostly going to say not great things about it. So I, I like it a lot less now than I did when I first read it. Bit of context, this is the first actual historical fiction book that I remember reading. I'm sure that I'd read other things sort of before that, but this is the sort of first like proper historical fiction book that I remember reading and like loving and obviously I'm I'm sure that I I loved history much earlier than that obviously um and I'm sure that I'd read other things but this book I think for me was really it was the first time that I read something that seemed like a kind of practical historical career so the the main character of this book is a book conservator that's what she does and so again obviously you know my love of history already existed but that was, you know, I was watching things like Indiana Jones and the Mummy films. And I was thinking, I was looking at those kind of <laughs> images that obviously you aspire to. Everyone wants to be yeah. Indiana Jones when they're a kid who loves archaeology. But that's not necessarily something that I really thought was like an actual career that I could have. But that wasn't something I really understood about kind of in, in today's world as well. Um, and so this book was a bit of a inspiration, I think, to me to want to do this sort of work and I did get really into it for a bit. I did some bookbinding short courses and I actually did an internship on paper conservation during my master's, which was cool. But at that point, wow. I knew I wasn't going to really do it, but it was still really cool. And I kind of knew it wasn't actually the career for me by that point because I didn't, I kind of got a little bit bored by the like material, practical, repetitive tasks. Like it was very slow going and careful. And I think when it, when I found the thing I was working on really interesting and there were like new things 
things coming up, that was great. But the kind of basic kind of repetitive practical elements of it, I was like, I don't want to do this again. I've done this for a week. <laughs> kind of, and that's why I knew archaeology wasn't really going to be my jam either. But I was more interested in kind of um, the big ideas and the stories and the, you know, what we can kind of learn from the material culture than the actual reconstruction of it. As much as I am going to criticise a lot of elements of this book, not really. There's good things as well, I think. It is coming from a place of of still a lot of love <laughs> and I will say this at the end as well but I, I do actually still think people should read it I am gonna recommend it bit of a spoiler yeah I do really like it but mm. <laughs> I don't so, know if it's actually good <laughs> how old were you when you first read it then do you remember um, well it was when it came out 2008 so I would have been 13 it was when it first came out in the shops like it was it was in kind of a special new bookshelf when my mum bought it, I think. So I, mm. I remember that. Um, yeah, so obviously uh, I had read books before this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is like proper historical fiction novel that I really remember reading and connecting with. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I remember it being really like heavily publicised and celebrated when it came out as well. Mm. And I think because, I mean, we'll probably talk about her a little bit later, but Geraldine Brooks is half Australian as well and she lives here and she... She's quite a celebrated author, so I think it was a big deal when it came out here. Yeah. No, I mean, I can talk about this later, but um, it was a couple of years after March, which is, like, her, I think one of her most famous ones, which won yeah. the prize. Like, it was quite a big novel, so it was kind of following right. as well. And March is based on the, like, father of the Little Women uh, family. That's why it's called right. March. That's <laughs> yeah. about his sense. time in the Civil War, but also, like, beforehand as well like you get flashbacks to his youth okay well before we get any further do you want to give us a quick synopsis of the story i understand it's a little bit complicated yes so as people have probably guessed from the title people of the book which for anyone who doesn't know is a term that's used to refer to people who are followers of the religions based around the kind of holy book so mostly judaism and christianity so this this book this novel centers around a religious book around the Sarajevo Haggadah. So it's based on a real story and I'll talk a bit more about that later and this is a real book. It starts in almost the present, it starts in the mid-90s with an Australian book restoration expert, her name's Hannah, and she is called to work, she's working up in the middle of the night, makes a big thing about it because she lives in Sydney, is <laughs> called to work on this manuscript that's been recovered and it is a really famous book. It, it does, like I said, it does exist, it's one of the oldest surviving Haggadahs and it's quite kind of unique because it was illuminated. It has the artwork in it, which wasn't very common for the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of quite like a Christian style of illumination. And so she travels to Sarajevo and she doesn't actually do much restoration work. She's mostly kind of going through and doing a report on its condition. And while she does that, she takes a set of samples. She takes the samples to different people and different forensic labs and she goes to these places. And so the book then alternates between a chapter on Hannah going to investigate something and then a chapter set in that part of the book's history. Oh. Um, so it's, there's a fragment of a butterfly wing and then a, the clasp, the where the clasps were that are missing, the white cat hair, traces of salt crystals, which is supposed to be salt water, and a, a wine stain mixed with blood. Mm. And so it goes in reverse chronological order back to when the book was made. So the first flashback that we get, which is the main part of the story that she knew the actual history of, which is in World War II in Sarajevo in 1940, and it's about Lola, who is 
based on a real person who's a Jewish girl who's rescued by the same man who rescues the Codex who was who worked at the museum. The next one is Vienna in 1894, which is where it was last restored. Mm-hmm. And the last records of it for when it was purchased by the museum then. And that's from the clasps that she notices are missing. Then we go back to Venice in 1609. And at that point, it's sort of already like over a hundred years old. So that's the wine stains and blood. And it's kind of a reference to the Inquisition. And then back to Tarragona in 1492, which is in Spain. For anyone who didn't know, I didn't, because I'm bad at joking. <laughs> I mean, I did from context in the book, but um, the it's still in pages. It's in like sections and that's the salt water. And then it, the white hair, which takes us to Seville in 1480, which is when it was first illustrated. And then the last two Hannah sections are also broken up in the middle by a little glimpse into Lola's life in 2002 in Jerusalem. Then Hannah's story throughout also involves a kind of romantic plot line with the man who saved the codex. So she meets him in the beginning and kind of starts with something, but she's very commitment phobic, but that's a kind of thread that runs throughout and his daughter is ill. And there's kind of a bit of the personal narrative of that. And I actually had largely forgotten about that because I do not think I cared about that when I first read this book. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and even this time, I kind of skimmed a little bit of those bits. <laughs> I don't love it. I mean, they're talking about books and like the burning of books, but it kind of ends the book with that, with her relationship with him. And I don't like that. Like, I don't like that the book is yeah. kind of bracketed. I think it gives too much precedence to that relationship instead of what the book sort of largely aims to be about. But yeah, in general, I'll say now, and I can expand a bit when I talk about some of the reception as well. I don't like Hannah. (laughs) I don't think you're really supposed to. It's in some ways it was quite refreshing because it's very different to what you expect from historical fiction novels, particularly from like Mm -hmm. a female protagonist. So she's like, she's kind of quite abrasive. She's not very polite she doesn't really care very much about certain things she sort of says something so it's in third person but you do get her thoughts and she kind of sometimes says things that you're just like "Mm." just like she's not awful you don't love her yeah like there's there's a section where she goes and visits one of her teachers that's what she often is doing in the chapters on her it's like she'll go and visit someone she already knows or she's staying in a city she's been to and it is quite heavy-handed in telling you the context (laughs) It kind of, I think she struggles a little bit because she needs to give so much information as an author to you about all these different places. So it does feel like, and here is a bit of extra information for you, reader. But yeah, so she goes to all these places and one of them, she visits an old teacher of hers and she makes this comment that in her head that they're similar because they don't have family around them. And Hannah's story is that her and her mom don't get along. And she's like, because I haven't seen my grandparents and his family, I'm pretty sure have all been killed. That's not the same though. (laughs) Like you kind of get these bits from it where she she really, she is the privileged person that you expect her to be. Mm. Kind of, but it's kind of a bit jarring. Yeah. I think her story is sort of supposed to be an aid of you learning about the book. And it's kind of like, she is the character to facilitate the story that Geraldine Brooks wanted to tell. But I'm not sure. I don't particularly like her narrative parts right. throughout the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you've talked a bit there about how you've thought about these narratives. How was the more general reception of the book from other people? It's gotten some fairly bad reviews. Uh, <laughs> often compared to the code, which I admit I haven't read, but I have seen the movie and I kind of know a bit about it. And I... I understand the comparison in a way 
for kind of obvious reasons. But I also don't because I don't mm. think it tries to do the same thing at all. So Da Vinci Code is very like mystery thriller. You're supposed to be really into like the suspense of what's happening, right? And I don't think this book is trying to do that. And so people yeah. have noted in reviews that it's kind of missing like the tension. It'll be like, there's no, you know, there's no cliffhangers. It's very slow paced. And I, that is true. I don't think that you're really supposed to feel like there is, there's no stakes to this investigation. And I think it is kind of one of its problems if that's what you're expecting, but it's sort of, it's a fascinating story. And the reason that I was interested in it is because I'm interested in old books. And from a kind of historian perspective, it's actually quite a kind of realistic version of how that would unfold. It wouldn't, it isn't a mystery thriller the way that the Da Vinci Code is when you're uncovering documents and you're looking into the history of something. It doesn't necessarily have the kind of tension of a mystery thriller. But I think that that, because it sort of almost sets itself up like it's going to be that. I think that's maybe the problem. It doesn't have the tension. It doesn't have the stakes because there's no real reason that she has to know what happened to it. I think that's the thing. Like it's just, it's just that she's a book conservator and she wants to know the history. Mm. And obviously I agree with that. We should know histories of things, but it doesn't give you any kind of narrative stakes to why she needs to find that out. (laughs) She's not like solving a murder. Like (laughs) Um, She just wants to kind of piece this puzzle together. And that's Mm. the kind of, that's what keeps it together as a book. And so it doesn't live up to, I think the expectations people had of it from how it was set up. And also other kind of criticisms of it have been that it is too too much about Hannah and not about the book (laughs) because it sets it up that it's really going to be about what happened to this codex, what happened to this text and it is but yeah like I said there's a lot about Hannah's kind of story as it's going through and I personally and from reviews other people didn't really care that much about Hannah's story Mm. (laughs) and that slows it down a lot because you're like I just want to get to the next thing like what's the next thing that happened to the book so yeah and I noticed as well in a few reviews and I agree with this that it is a little bit like this white woman uncovering a story that is not hers Mm. and the way the book sets that up is that she gets this call and they're like well they don't want someone who's like French they don't want someone who's this they don't want someone from this group of people because it is quite an intense kind of political situation they don't want someone who's a Muslim blah 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 because of the history of the book they want like an outsider and that's why they call in this Australian woman like that's the kind of that's the narrative of it which is not which is ridiculous I think Um, but that's the kind of story they tell of it is that she's got this She's been given this opportunity because she has the skills, but also she is removed from the political context of the book. That's how they kind of frame it and that's how they get away with it. And I think they do that because Geraldine Brooks does that because she wants you to have this kind of in. She wants you to have, because you're obviously an outside perspective as well. So by doing that, she can have this narrator who explains everything to the reader. And, you know, they go to like her teacher in Vienna, like I said, you get more explanations because Hannah doesn't know a lot of the story. So she is being told it as well. And in that, the reader is being told it but I think still there could have been a much more interesting narratorial voice perspective that she could have used and there's also a few moments that are a little bit dicey like race wise she kind of makes a few comments sometimes there's like a cab driver in one scene but she sort of uses terms and I think obviously you know she's an, a white Aussie woman from the 90s like it's probably quite accurate yeah right. like <laughs> but I still don't think that is good the choice of that perspective I think is really unfortunate I don't know if Geraldine Brooks necessarily could have written this book very well from the perspective of like a Bosnian person or even just a Jewish person generally 
because she maybe doesn't have that perspective herself and that's sort of why mm. she chose to do this kind of outsider perspective but yeah and it also gets a bit caught up and I think this is another reason that it's boring to some people it gets caught up in the narrative of like Hannah so she's writing a report right she's writing an essay about her investigation of the book and so it gets caught up in like her wanting professional success like she kind of talks about how like this will be good for my essay and then it kind of loses that like excitement loses the kind of magic that it could have had about the historical process of course again it's actually quite realistic yeah <laughs> you find things you're like oh that will be really good for my chapter that I'm writing like you're not you're not necessarily always thinking at least thinking actively in the terms of like this is magical this is something I've uncovered oh I know this thing now in some ways I think that is there but yeah in in framing it as this sort of professional endeavor that she is trying to write this essay about these things she finds it it definitely loses a bit of magic that the the chapters on the book itself kind of have the main criticisms have just been that it is it's too slow and kind of dull in that way and about kind of Hannah's voice so if you kind of read it I think I read it just interested in the in the book in the history that it was going to tell and so I didn't really care about the fact that I didn't like Hannah <laughs> like I kind of read through those bits a bit quicker and I was interested in what she did I was really interested in her like career but I sort of saw her as an access point into the story about the book as opposed to as what I was supposed to be invested in and I think yeah. if you kind of do that if you see Hannah as like a side character and the the Haggadah as the main character then maybe you kind of can enjoy it better. It has also got good reviews on um, on Goodreads in particular. People saying, oh, it's a tragic romance and like the intrigue is so beautiful. I don't think it's written particularly well, but it's not written badly. Mm. <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense. It's just kind of there. It's just, it's just there. Yeah. It's a bit frustrating. <laughs> From what you're saying, I feel like she could have had the first chapter or first couple of chapters about Hannah being called to look at this book and then like, the rest of the book could have just been about this book and the history that it had mm. rather than like continually referring back to Hannah. Like, yeah. Or mm. at least, cause I think it's okay that she refers back to Hannah and she's usually going to the places like she's in Vienna. It, the problem is that the chapters are like the same length. Like yeah, she does a lot and it's real. Yeah. If the chapters were like five pages, <laughs> like you flash back to Hannah for a bit and then it goes straight back into the book. I think that would have worked better. It also struggles a bit, and this is another thing a few people have said, but mostly kind of as well my thoughts on that, is that because she has such a short time to introduce you to each of these characters in the flashbacks, I think you don't care a lot about, Mm. like, each bit of the history that you get. You don't care as much about the people. Mm. And sometimes it takes her quite a long time to get to the book. So the first one in particular, you don't hear about the Haggadah till like maybe like five sixths of the way through that chapter. Like it's right, right. at the end. The that's chapter silly. is about Lola. Um, and it's really interesting. And that's, yeah. that's the only one you really care about, to be honest. I think mm. she cares the most about Lola than compared to all of her other characters. Yeah, it means that you kind of, you have to care about the characters. The other ones are better. The other chapters get to the book quicker. But there is a lot of like plot in it that isn't directly about the text. And so because she hasn't had time to set up those characters as people that you care about, you don't get super invested unless you're already mm. making yourself be invested in the story of this book. And so I think mm. she could have done better to really center those more around the actual text. I think she struggles with the first one because of the choice to make it Lola. Which I can sort of talk about with like the the real history, I guess. So Geraldine Brooks heard about the Codex when she was a newspaper reporter and she was in Sarajevo and she was covering the Bosnian War. At that the fate of the Haggadah at that point was they didn't know, they had no idea what it was. It was missing. And she there was a lot of, she says, like journalistic speculation around what 
had happened to it and where it was because it hadn't, there was no evidence that it had been destroyed, but it had, no one knew where it was. And so that's how she got kind of hooked into this story. And then it came out that it was saved during the shelling and it was kept in bank vault. That's what's in the novel. That's true. By a Muslim man. His real name was Enver Imamovic, which is the story in the novel is based quite directly on what he did. He is the is the one that Hannah has the romantic relationship with. That's obviously completely made up. <laughs> right. That's really fictional. So I think that was a bit interesting. But um, anyway, and so then the story in the 40s, we know quite a bit about. It was a man named Dervis Karut in 1941. He was also Muslim, which is interesting. He was an Islamic scholar. Um, so this kind of Jewish book has been saved quite a bit by non-Jewish people. And Geraldine Brooks has actually written an article for the New Yorker magazine which is quite good, um, which is about the history that she learned about Dervis Kukut. So yeah, he saved the book from the Nazis. And the article that she wrote also tells a story of this young Jewish girl, Mira Papo, who Kurut and his wife hide from the Nazis while they were also saving the Haggadah. So that's true. But instead of telling his story, so he's kind of like this dignified, he has like, he wears a fez, kind of interesting like scholar. And I think that was perhaps a less easily accessible kind of character for what Geraldine Brooks wanted to do. So she chose to focus Mm. instead on Mira, who is Lola in the book. And it feels a little bit forced because like she doesn't really have anything to do with the book. So the choice to kind of focus on her story, I think could have been interesting, but because we only get these little like glimpses, if the whole book went into just this history chronologically, there would have been more space to kind of explore her story and why that's related to the book, but it doesn't Mm. It doesn't really make sense to do that in such a short space because we don't really know very much about the the man that actually saves it. Like it's, mm. you kind of meet his wife and she has coffee with his wife. And then later she shows that they, he finds her and, and they take her in. They pretend she's the maid um, and protect her. And obviously she is involved with his life as well, but she doesn't have anything to do with what happens with the book. So he saves it. And the story, which is in the New Yorker article, and I think is true that she then puts in her book in a slight variation, but is he puts it in his pants and like everything. And they have this really tense kind of, and she doesn't, it doesn't have as much intensity in the novel as it could. Moment where the Nazis have come to the museum and they want to be shown the Jewish texts. um, And they're obviously going to take them. They do this kind of very sneaky like one of them goes to take it and he's like well someone's already come and collected that and they write this slip of paper that says that it's already been collected and like send that down to the desk before they get there and he goes and takes it and he subtly leaves and he like has the coffee outside trying to seem like he hasn't got this 500 year old (laughs) text in his pants and then he escapes and so I was like that could have been a lot more interesting, I think, the way. Yeah. And so that's true. And then he takes it to a mosque, a mosque library, and another Muslim friend kind of keeps it for him, keeps it safe. They like put it between, you know, two books on um, Islamic history or something. And so, yeah, so that's a really interesting story. But the section she writes chooses to focus on Lola, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, who is kind of on Mira, who is 16, and she kind of like her her parents get taken away. And again, this is where some of it, I think she struggles with how she actually writes these sections because she needs to tell you so much of the history. So like there's a bit where Lola's father is is, is called away to the labor camps. And like he says, you know, oh, I'm strong, I'll be okay. Like I, if I resist, I'm in more trouble. So I'm just going to go. And then it literally tells you, like, but of course, like there weren't any labor camps. He was taken away to a concentration camp and he would have been killed. Like it basically kind of says that it's like this sort of, you don't need to say that. Like we know that as a modern reader, we know that Lola didn't know that. Like it's just sort of, it is a bit forced the way that it conveys some of that history. But I think so. I think choosing to write as her 
takes that focus away from the book itself. And I think that's because she did that research and she was really interested in this story. And then in that last section where we see Lola again, Mira Papa as a kind of elderly woman in Israel secured the safety of Kukut's daughter during the Bosnian war in the nineties. So there's this kind of really interesting relationship between these two families kind of historically. And I think that's why she was like interested by that and wanted to include that bit of the history, but it does feel kind of forced in how it's written. But also that chapter is probably one of the most interesting ones in the book, the, the first flashback one. Yeah. And then, so she says in the afterward, the, the white hair, the cat hair and the salt water sections are completely fictional. Like we don't know what happened basically during the Spanish Inquisition pretty much or the expulsion of the Jews in 1492. That's kind of, we don't really know anything that actually happened there. It's a little bit based on some of the illustrations that are actually in the text, in the Haggadah that they can't identify. They don't know what that was referring to. And so so there's a bit of a hint, the suggestion that maybe it was referring to something that actually was happening. And so she says that, but otherwise that's kind of completely fictional. And then also the, the Catholic priest, which is the, the blood and the wine, Vistorini, who saves it during the 1609 section. All we know is that there was a Catholic priest named Vistorini who saved it, theoretically, from being burnt during the Inquisition. That's kind of all we know. And so she based that section on other writings from the time about 17th century Venice about priests at the time and there were quite a few Catholic priests apparently that converted to Judaism and so there's sort of some writing about that and she based that character on those other histories but we don't actually know anything about him it's a very dramatic section so she like he feels very kind of torn over this interest in this book because he is Catholic and then he you kind of think he's supposed to have converted it's a little bit confusing but he has this like very dramatic moment and he like he spills some wine on the book and he he is trying to pray and he cuts his hand on this glass and it like drips on it and then it's all very dramatic um yeah (laughs) and so it's sort of some of it is much that first section where we go back to during world war ii that's the most kind of based on an actual history and i think that's what she was really inspired by that and the saving of it in the 90s that's where she kind of drew the most historical inspiration and the other sections are kind of looking at what was there and and creating a fictional story that could have happened around it Um, it it seems like she's trying to do a lot in this (laughs) it's the impression i get like there's so many different time periods and so Mm. many different narratives kind of overlapping it almost like just from describing it sounds like it might have been better as like a collection of just short stories like centered around this book or something Mm. like that yeah, because yeah, it almost is. Like the flashback mm. kind of chapters almost are short stories on their own, but they're not framed like they're not, it's not kind of done like that. And there's too yeah. much of this kind of connecting thread of Hannah that is supposed to hold them together. And I think actually, I think you're right. I think it would have been better if it was just here are a set of short stories oh. um, about the different times. I don't know. I think she wanted the book to be a tribute to like the librarians in Sarajevo who who saved the book and the different people who have fought for this book over time. I mean, I think in a way, something that it does do quite well is it sort of, it creates this sense that all of these different people are connected and all this kind of idea of like humanity and a culture. And that it's also written in the same way. So each of the short stories, there's nothing that makes you feel like it's a different time, except that it gives you the date. Right. Like the way it's written, it doesn't, you kind of know that because you know where it's set, but it, it doesn't really come across with a kind of different vibe. And I think that's because she has to, again, she's fitting so much into this book mm. um, that like 
So how people speak, how she writes, it's very, like, very homogenous. I think that was maybe supposed to be part of this message that it's like, you know, about humanity and that all these people are the same in certain ways, even though they're very different. But actually, I think it just kind of loses some of the diversity of the book's history. Because that's what it's supposed to be telling you. Like this book has traveled mm. around Europe right? It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the way that it tries to do so much and make these scenes all kind of connected ends up actually kind of making it seem more flattened than the actual history mm. would have been. And she tries, but I don't think she quite achieves that. I mean, I don't think she's trying to teach you about the history of each setting. From what I know, from my little bit of research, I mean, I don't, obviously, it's a lot of periods. I know a bit about <laughs> manuscripts. Um, I know a little bit about like World War II, um, but I don't think she's trying to like teach you a lot about it. It does have a certain amount of, I think, material accuracy to some of how, like what's going on in the settings. Like it's oh. very possible, but what she seems to really care about is like the kind of the similar experiences, the similar feelings that the codex can kind of elicit from these people in completely different settings. I think that's what she's trying to do, but they don't feel like completely different settings. Mm. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's kind of a deviation from what she's done previously as well, because most mm. of her other stuff is like full historical fiction, you know, like Year of Wonders and mm -hmm. her recent stuff like Caleb's Crossing has all been like historical fiction, no like modern looking back kind of stuff. So it's, I think it sounds like she doesn't quite gelled the two very well. Yeah, I don't think so. Because okay. I think, and that's why I think it comes, it ends up being like, that it has had those reviews that it's kind of dull or kind of a bit boring mm. that I mean it did it did win prizes like it, it won the Australian book of the year and literary fiction award when it came out so like it's not it's not a bad book she tries to do so much and so many different things mm. and tries to have like so many different settings so many whatever that none of them really feel like they have that much life to them mm. yeah yeah um, too much, it's too much going on like yeah I feel like it's almost like the central central narrative of the story which should be the book kind of doesn't come across no yeah yeah and it's yeah like i said i, I think her other books are good like she's not a bad writer you know she's written in the kind of she's written during the bubonic plague is year of wonders kind of all these different settings so she's had quite a bit of diversity i mean mostly i think she kind of writes in the 17th century but not really she's had kind of all these different settings that she writes in so it's not that she's not capable as a kind of historical fiction writer and she's quite famous and then she also does have that kind of investigative background because she was foreign correspondent um for wall street journal which is where she kind of heard about this um story and has had like, I think awards as well for her journalistic writing. So, cause my immediate response is like, well, this could have been, if, if this was done better, this could have been so good. Cause the premise is really good. The premise is really interesting. And it's such a unique kind of book to, to base that around. Cause it has this really interesting history or these moments that it shows up in history that we hear about it. Mm. Yeah, you can't say, you know, if it had been done by a better author maybe, but because she is a really good author. So it's interesting that, I don't know, it just doesn't quite pull it off. I think, like you say, her other books are all set in like a single historical setting, basically. Um, yeah, and which obviously makes it a bit more nail, focused. doesn't quite nail the development of each kind of setting because she has so many and she has to kind of focus on Hannah as well, which I think is kind of a mistake. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a, it's a very interesting technique used by some historical fiction mm. authors. Like there's quite a lot of 
books, especially in the last five years that have come out about like, you know, some sort of descendant or something where a relative will find a letter or a diary or something written by someone. And the author uses that as a way to kind of like tell both stories simultaneously. Like you've got the contemporary mm. setting and you've got the historical mm. setting, but like, again, it's trying not to sort of tell too much. It's telling those two stories and that's all we've got. Mm. Whereas like that narrative of using all of the, all of it is just, yeah. Mm. And like you said, that yeah. it sort of then results in the sort of historical aspect of the, of it becoming a bit more ahistorical. So like the stuff that's happening in the medieval period isn't really that medieval and it's not really that like yeah. well conveyed. So yeah. I don't know. It sounds like, I don't know. It's also a book that's like 12 years old. So yeah. there has been a lot of different things that have, ha- that have happened. And I, you know, it'd be interesting to see what kind of historical fiction was coming out at in 2008. Cause I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah. When, when did the Da Vinci code come out? It was earlier, wasn't it? I think. Let's have a look. Do you wonder if she's maybe trying to ape that yeah, kind of style by having this modern 2003. frame? Yeah. See, that's what, like I, like I said, I understand why you would compare it to Da Vinci Code because um, mm. it, is, it is in a way a kind of similar format or concept at least, but a, a very different um, yeah. vibe. Yeah, definitely. It sounds even like I have read the Da Vinci Code and mm-hmm. what you're describing is a lot more sophisticated than the Da Vinci yeah. Code. Yeah, one of the reviews say, you know, like, how did I word it? It was like that it's an, like an erudite version of Brown's work or Da Vinci Code. Right, like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I suppose it is more sophisticated in life. I don't think anyone's calling the Da Vinci Code sophisticated. <laughs> just, yeah, I don't, I don't assume in like a fancy la-di-da sophisticated, <laughs> but just like structurally it's more complicated than... Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think maybe a little bit of that, like, because it doesn't try and sensationalise it, which again, I actually, in some ways, I quite like, because it doesn't make it into this kind of big Hollywoodized sensational Mm. story it doesn't try and add in suspense and like cliffhangers or whatever where they aren't kind of already in the book's history i think there's moments of tension that are actually there that she doesn't do enough with like the the getting Mm. them out but because she doesn't try and add those in she doesn't kind of try and make it this falsified dramatic story and it's being compared to books that do that like da vinci code does that make sense like i think that's kind of the problem is that it actually tries to be a bit more everyday, I feel. Mm. It doesn't try and, like, unnecessarily hype up this story. Even though, like, in the beginning, she's going to a place that has, like, is war-torn and that, you know, they've got guns on the street corners and she's quite nervous and there is a bit of sort of tension in that. This is a side thought that has occurred to me. I don't know if they I don't think anyone has thought about this, but, like, it would be a good movie. You would have to make Hannah more likeable. I think it would be really expensive because you'd have to have too many different settings. But, like, it would be cool. Because I, I think what's missing from it is this is that she doesn't centre the text sometimes enough. And so mm-hmm. we care like we don't quite care enough about the people because it doesn't have, she doesn't have enough space to really get us into them. Sometimes we do, but not really. And so mm-hmm. like if it was one thing that a film could do is like you would you would see the physical pages of it and they could kind of physically, visually centre it around the text. But anyway, that's just a side thought. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So after all that, would you actually, I mean, I'm going to jump in here because I didn't actually get to ask my time period question there because <laughs> you just went for it. <laughs> no, we started talking about it. So I just kept talking. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you do. So after all that, I think fair to say that there's sort of mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Um, 
do you think so 2008 Tess I reckon would definitely recommend this book (laughs) oh yeah wholeheartedly 2020 (laughs) Tess what does she say (laughs) yes I still would say read it I would say I mean it's not phenomenal by (laughs) I still enjoyed reading it and I think it's still based on a really interesting history and it does convey some of that like Mm -hmm. you do actually learn a bit about like what's happened to this manuscript which I think is the interestingness of the story does kind of carry it um, enough that you can still kind of enjoy it. Don't come at it expecting a Da Vinci Code. Like don't, don't expect like that kind of sensational drama history because it's not there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and don't expect to like Hannah. You can still get invested in her story. I don't know. Maybe other people will have different opinions on that than me. But if you, if you go into it interested in the history that it's going to tell and not with huge expectation, then I still think it's really enjoyable and it's quite easy to read. Like, okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's not like basic. Like it's, it's kind of nicely written ish, but it's, yeah, you can just kind of sit down and pick it up and read it. Like, does that make sense? Like you, you know, as a kind of historical fiction, sometimes they're very like convoluted and sometimes they're too basic in trying to tell you everything. And I think in a way it does kind of do that. Okay. Um, as sort of readability. Um, so yeah, I would still say read it. <laughs> um, I think it's it's a little bit disappointing from what it could be with yeah. the idea of it. Um, and that's kind of unfortunate, but I still think that it is worth the read. I still think that it's interesting. I will also add, because I forgot to say this, I hate the audiobook. <laughs> audiobook <laughs> I was like, oh, a different angle, you know? Um, and I really didn't enjoy it. Mm. Maybe other people will enjoy it more than me. Uh, <laughs> She does all the accents <laughs> of all the different people that Hannah meets. I mean, from the first, however much of it I listened to before I stopped. And <laughs> that's sort of fine. Like, I don't think she's doing a terrible job of the accents. But it's so, it just feels like, it feels very jarring. It was very surprising to me. As soon as she did the German woman's accent on the plane, I was like, what? <laughs> um, what? Because when you read that sort of thing in your head, you don't, you can't do the accent. Yeah. And I think you sort of imagine the person being the right nationality, you kind of know who they are. It's not like you, but you don't, I don't know, it just felt, it was very, felt very forced. It felt very surprising to me. And it made it much less relaxing somehow. <laughs> like, Take you out of the, out of the headspace yeah. to listen yeah. to. It. Yeah. Why? I just didn't, I didn't like that. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, I think she's trying to add a bit more of the like spice and diversity that the book doesn't really convey in spice. how. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was maybe okay, a little bit spicy <laughs> a little bit something but yeah Did she really emphasize the australianness as well like when she's uh, doing not doing too Hannah's? not too badly there are some right. things in there where i'm just like why that's not okay <laughs> like i know she is australian mm. <laughs> who wrote it um mm. but she also she's got quite a strong american accent as well when she talks like it's a quite an interesting accent she's got because she spent a lot of time in America because I think her mm. dad was I don't know exactly but there's some sort of thing where she grew up in America or was in America for a long time mm. plus she was a foreign correspondent as well so she was mm. around from different places a lot so her accent's but very different like moments where the book really slightly overdoes the Australianness, but not yeah I think I said to you guys last week when we were talking about it, uh, I remember it being talked about on the first Tuesday book club on ABC (laughs) and uh, uh, 
Jason, the guy who was on it, was just like, it's just too much. Like, no one would talk like this. <laughs> right. And it's because they make her, it's because she kind of makes her, like, not super abrasive, but, like, it's also, like, it's the relationship with Osrin, who's the guy that, that she, the one that saved the Haganah. Mm. That's, like, I don't know, some of the things she says to him, you're just like, what, why? Don't do right. it. Be nice. So she's not designed to be likable. No, I don't think so. Maybe okay. she is. <laughs> you hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Because she doesn't feel it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And I, like, she's, mm, I don't think so. She's sort of a little bit. And like, she tries to help him with the stuff with his kid and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. Have either of you read any other Geraldine Brooks stuff? Yeah. No, yeah, I haven't. Know? I've read March and what's the other one? The Year of Wonders? One. The no, newer I one. I haven't read that, which I want to uh, read. Ah, no, uh, the sacred chord or sorry, Caleb's Crossing. Caleb's Crossing. Okay, she's written one just really recently called the Sacred Secret Chord. Secret Chord, yeah, based on like the Hallelujah lyric, I think. Right. Um, but I don't know exactly what it was. I remember trying to read so many times A Year of Wonders, the one that's set in the plague. I couldn't get past the first twenty pages. I found it really hard to read. I don't know whether it was just me or. Like, mm. my mum really loves Geraldine Brooks. She's got all her books. My grandma really loved Geraldine Brooks, so she would always buy her stuff. So I was aware of it, but I just found it really hard to read. I think, like you said, that this book itself is a bit different because it's obviously designed to be a bit more, like, contemporary on this sort of thing. But, yeah, I just thought it would be interesting to sort of see if anyone else had read it. <laughs> no, I want to, though, for obvious reasons. But, no, I haven't yet. I'll put it on my list. Mm. Yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> try and look at it soon. It's a long list. <laughs> it's a long list. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you have any other um, sources or anything you would like to follow up with on this? Or um, well, I actually would say read the uh, New Yorker article that she wrote because mm. it's quite interesting. Um, and it's not, it's been like archived as a PDF now. So we'll, I'll share that link in the show notes. And then uh, the actual book like I would suggest I know this probably seems quite obvious um but like the the National Museum of Bosnia and Herzegovina have information about it on the website that's where it's currently housed I think um they have kind of like a description of its history and actually like look up pictures of it because I think it would have been cool if she could have had some pictures or something I don't know because I feel like people who don't really know what like illuminated manuscripts kind of look like yeah like it adds it adds a lot of richness to it if you can actually kind of picture like what the actual book looks like so like yeah. that's a question actually does she describe it well do you feel um, a bit <laughs> yeah it's hard for me to say because i know right. quite about what illuminated manuscripts look like and i already knew that even when i first read it because i love them that sounds very nerdy but also like if you google uh marginalia anyone yeah. listening uh which are the little artworks in the margins it's uh it's chaos it's amazing um uh the uh the nun picking the penises from the penis tree is obviously my favorite uh yeah um so yeah it's always fighting snails for some reason Knights are always fighting snails uh, it's a great time sometimes the snails are jousting there's yep. a lot of very weird phallic art. Um, so, like, marginalia and medieval manuscripts in particular, but also the actual illustrations are very beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so I already was picturing it. Like, I already knew what it was going to look like. But I feel like not not really. <laughs> um, because it's coming from the perspective of Hannah, who already knows what it's going to look like, kind of. Like, it doesn't... It does and it doesn't. But, yeah, it's hard. 
there's one thing that I actually find quite difficult to tell. Now I'm trying to remember what it looks like because I already know. <laughs> like I'm like, I know what it was going to look like. So I don't even, I don't know how much I really. Has the book itself been digitized or anything? No, I don't think so. Um, from what I could find, mm. no, I know, right? But yeah, because it's also quite unique with the illustrations um, for its time. So it's definitely. There's photographs of it. Um, there are photographs. It's definitely worth having a look at some of the pages and some of the illustrations. Yeah, the actual, there's a little bit of information and some photos on the website of the museum where it's housed, which is kind of nice. As, but um, yeah, that's one of the main things, I think. I think read the book. <laughs> and then if you're interested in like the particular periods, it's hard to give a suggestion because like there's so many different periods. Mm. Obviously I'm going to be like, yeah, look up medieval manuscripts because um, I'm a medievalist. But you know, it's, I think there's a lot of really interesting history to the way that uh, museum artifacts and stuff were saved during uh, World War II. Um, and there's a lot of stuff on that. Like the, what were they called? The museum men? Is that what they were called? The ones who... Monument men. Monuments oh, yeah. men. Thank you. Um, and like those kind of stories about World War II and people who saved various texts and manuscripts. I think there's a lot. There's a lot out there um, for that kind of side of the history too. But I don't know as much about that. Um, yeah, so my suggestion would be read it <laughs> if you can. Um, and then, you know, pick up on the things that you're interested in and kind of look into those. But um, definitely manuscripts themselves is where I, I would start. I just looked up the manuscript and there's a lot of really cool pictures online. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. The other thing, sorry, the other thing to do is to Google British Library and manuscripts and just have a fun time looking through different yeah. kinds of manuscripts because yeah. they've digitized a whole bunch of their stuff, which I like. <laughs> there's also, I think there's a couple of videos about, um, so one of the pictures in particular is that it's about um, a woman who had dark skin who was in one of the pictures that they can't identify. And that's part of what one of the sections she wrote that's fictional is about. Um, and there's sort of like a few things about that as well. I think there's a few videos on YouTube where people have talked about it. Um, yeah, there's a few videos of it. About like, like that kind of particular mystery of it. And also that's another thing they definitely... Yeah, who was the dark skin woman in Sarajevo, Haggard? There you go. <laughs> I was like, Haggard. Something about that. Um, yeah, if it comes up if you Google it, so it's fine. Cool. So, yeah, I would say look into the book itself because that's what the that's what the book should this novel should make you interested in. Mm. <laughs> I don't know that it does, but uh, and also the kind of if you can, I can't remember what site I saw it on. I'll try. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, the actual like place where it's housed now is also really beautiful. <laughs> um, but yeah, the actual illustrated manuscript itself will be my main suggestion for what to look at to be honest <laughs> cool cool do you guys have <laughs> non-historical fiction slash not related to one of the books we're reading recommendations for this for this week lucky lucky has been marking oh I, I can't think of what I've been doing this week that isn't marking <laughs> 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 I don't feel like I've had a life outside of that um, yeah, I, yeah, oh, look, I was, I was watching, um, What We Do in the Shadows, the TV series, oh. um, which is the TV, not happy with the TV series. 
I only saw a very little part of it and I love the movie so much that I just didn't really get into it. I would say that the, I love the movie as well. Um, and the TV series is a really good like expansion of it. Okay. Um, All right. And it's a very <laughs> funny and very stupid. So <laughs> I recommend is. that. Oh my God, the movie is so stupid. Have you seen um, the paranormal, whatever, the one about Wellington the- paranormal. Wellington paranormal. Yes. yes. I've oh, seen a couple episodes of that. It's just really funny. <laughs> It's one of those also, I mean, I know it's a weird time, um, I think, in the world to watch, like, cop dramas um, and particularly, like, comedy kind of sitcoms based on that. But it's um, so dumb. That... Yeah, but it's so stupid. That's it. Like, I'm, like <laughs> a lot of tension at the moment, I think, around, like, watching, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine um, mm. and stuff like that. But, like, Wellington Paranormal, it's, it's so specific. It does humanise the police, I'll give it sure. But, like, it's so dumb. The movie was just, like, yeah. vomiting. I liked the plastic bag. There's one bit where there's like just a white plastic bag in the street and they like get called out for this thing and then they're like, ah, oh, it's, uh, it's actually just that plastic bag over there. Oh yeah, that's sort of really early on. I remember that. Anecdote out of the... That was terrible. I just like, it's so funny. Okay. I'm sorry. Anyway. Mine's a completely cool. different like tone because mm-hmm. I just finished the audio book of Know My Name by Chanel Miller, who was the uh, sexual assault vi- victim of Brock Turner. Um, ah. And she reads she reads the audio book. She's a fantastic writer, um, and it just delves into the whole like underside of what these cases like. Obviously, this case was highly publicized. The whole uh, sentencing was highly publicized, uh, but it just delves into her experience and like she's she was for so long she was um named emily in the um in the statements and like her alias was essentially emily emily and so the mm-hmm. whole point of this book is basically to say like no my name my name is chanel miller and i was the one that brought her so assaulted but yeah it was it's really good i could highly recommend the audiobook which i listened to um because i would just you know listen to it while i was on the train and stuff and it at the very end of the book, she has her full 30 minute um, victim impact statement as well, which was really good. Wow. So yeah, I highly mm. recommend that, but that's kind of all I've got really. <laughs> yeah. that's good. What about you Tess, do you have anything? Oh, I'm never prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> reading this this week and sleeping yeah that's <laughs> we've, fair we've been re-watching um elementary which i suppose is an interesting because uh, um, and i haven't seen a l- like a little bit of the latest season um so we've gone back a few seasons to where sophie's up to and we're watching it together um yeah, yeah it's interesting i started watching that it's kind of i don't know I was such a diehard Sherlock fan for such a long time. And then, of course, like, Sherlock kind of, like, died on its ass really quickly. Uh, (laughs) So, like, I think maybe uh, I was a bit more open to watching it now. So I think it's one of those ones that, like, we'll just kind of plot away on Mm. if we can be bothered. I definitely, when it first came out, I was so angry. (laughs) I was a diehard Sherlock fan. and. Sherlock BBC the show as yeah. I like Sherlock Holmes yeah. the listeners in case anyone didn't realize that's what we meant yeah yeah <laughs> and I was so cross that the show had made Joan a woman and not made Sherlock a woman 
I was like, you're going to make one of them a woman. It's just because you want heteronormative tension. Yeah. Uh, I hate that. So I was cross about that. And then I was really cross that they made her a woman and gave her a different backstory. They made her a failed surgeon instead of a woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I was like, why couldn't she have been in the army? What the fuck? Um, that made me really cross. But then as soon as I started watching it, I did not care. <laughs> um, because it's so interesting. And it does something so different to the Sherlock series. Yeah. I didn't really care. Because I think the Sherlock series tries to be like, a very clever but very kind of direct, at least the first season, the first two seasons, um, reinterpretation of some of those stories. Mm. And it's sort of, it try, the way that it tries to move Sherlock into a modern setting is so different to the way that Elementary does it. Elementary takes like the basic concepts and then is like, here is a completely modern story, basically. Okay. Like, it's so different and it's got so much more diversity and so many more interesting characters to me. Mm. Yeah. Sherlock anymore. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and like you know, Mrs. Hudson is a trans woman, and um, there's a lot more like just representation in general, and like the people that they encounter in the stories. Um, so I really okay. like that. And yeah. also, yeah. I don't know, I just enjoy it more as a show. I find him a lot more likable in the end than I found. Um, I can't call him Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock. Um, once I kind of got into how he is portrayed. Um, yeah. So it takes a little bit of adjusting to. Yeah. And if you're coming into it, I think in that context, as someone who loved Sherlock and was like expecting and like concerned about how the American was, it was obviously just an American copy of the British idea mm. of a modern Sherlock. Um, then mm. you don't like it as much, but I really like it. Mm. It's <laughs> cool. one of those ones as well that you start and there's like eight seasons and you're like, yeah. Like 22 episodes a season and you're just yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah, four seasons as they were coming out. So. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Because from the beginning, you're just like, oh. Three. And this is something I was just talking to my friend Rachel about the other day. Uh, you both know her friend Rachel for the context of the podcast. Um, <laughs> that the Netflix doesn't have the drama of the season finale. And I know we already know this, but watching it with Sophie and one that I so specifically remember like sobbing in my bed, watching it the day it came out. Um, <laughs> that like Sophie just like she was on her phone because it, it sort of follows the same <laughs> like format of an episode. And when you don't know this yeah. finale, all of the real, real drama happens right at the very end of the episode, but you know, it's coming when you know it's the season finale. Yeah. There's a different That's type of thing. <laughs> um, and it just went straight on to the next episode. She was like, Oh, it's all right. And I was like, well, yeah, of course it's all right. But I didn't know that for six months at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Start hurling stuff around the room and just to start. I had to live with this. <laughs> to live with this cliffhanger. Thank you. <laughs> um, are any of you going to watch Anola Holmes on uh, Netflix? Yes. yes. Yeah, I think I will. Yeah. Yeah, I came out yesterday and I'm very excited for it. Mm. The trailer looked fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks quite like well made aesthetically. It looks like I'll just enjoy watching it, you know? Mm. I've seen a clip of it and it looks quite cool with it, like on a, you know, Victorian steam train and stuff. It's like, oh. They're going to do a better job of introducing a, a sister character than uh, Sherlock did because, by God, that was awful. Far is very low. <sighs> did you watch Sherlock, Loggy? I didn't watch Sherlock, yeah. I had no idea. I think I, maybe I watched, like, the first season or whatever First season's fine. There were only, like, three episodes, right, each Yeah, season. the first yeah. season's good. Yeah, so I think I watched that, um, but none of the rest of it. 
and I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't have any. <laughs> doesn't feel like I should bother. All the right. in season three, to be honest, that's all the problem. That's right. What It'll just like went downhill. Oh man. I did know that, like, I've just picked up random bits of information about it. Like, they did an old-timey episode that was that was a Christmas special yeah. period, but it was it was just him on drugs or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it was just true. <laughs> yeah, he was on drugs and like having a hallucination and stuff because he was trying to solve a crime in his mind and stuff, but it was all set in the Victorian era. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great time. It's a it's a strange time. It's 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 really distressing as well because it's obviously tied to Doctor Who as well and I was a huge Whovian as well yeah. and then like oh, man. Stephen mm. Moffat kind of just came in and we're all like, yay, he'll write some cool things. And Oh, God, remember that optimism? Remember when he started? Season, like, <laughs> season five was, was so good. good. And, then, and then everything just... Yeah. And I, I just haven't been able to get back into it since. Me neither, which is really sad to me because I know there's a female doctor and I've watched a bit of her stuff, but I just, I still can't, I don't like it as much. It's just, mm. it's not the I same. I want to. I will get back into it because I love Jodie Whittaker. She's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's been me with like every season of Doctor Who that's kind of come out since the new one. I like start saying like, I'm going to get back into it this time. Then I watch a couple of episodes and just kind of drop off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I watched the first episode with Jodie Whittaker and I was like, yeah, that's really cool. But then. Hmm. But, but Hmm. they're like, you know what we have to do? Because we have this interesting diverse trio is we've got to have a white man and they add old white Graham. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the bad thing was that like his character seemed to be the most fleshed out of all of those well. character was funny. <laughs> i did not dislike graham but i yeah. didn't want him to be there yeah <laughs> i was like you never had three companions this is so unnecessary You're also he would not cope in the situations that you need to be no. in and the, whole first, the whole first episode is his partner the black woman dying for his man pain so he'll go off and, mm, yeah. and I was like this is not a good setup to the first female Doctor Who nah don't do that so no. annoyed so annoyed <laughs> so I just couldn't get into it after that and I was like you're doing quite good things otherwise but like why'd you have to do that shit and I just kept thinking he was gonna drop off and then he was just still there he's still yeah. there now I think I know <laughs> <laughs> Go back to hosting the chase. What are you doing? <laughs> no one. If you've got, or if you're trying to appeal to an audience of middle-aged white men who don't like the fact that there's a female doctor, they're already cross. They're already yeah. Yeah. Don't bother at this point. They're not going to be like, oh, there's someone I can relate to in the TARDIS, so yeah, better I'll watch care. it. They're not going to care. That worked when you needed to appeal to like young women, and so you had a young female companion. Yeah, it worked that way around it does not work this other way around because they're too cross about the fact that it's a woman they're not they don't care if you give us a companion they're used to having the doctor yeah i mean they had like rory's dad he came in a little bit arthur weasley he right donna's dad donna's dad was great no donna's uh grandfather bernard cribbins yeah they don't need to be a companion i just i was just i have so many thoughts about doctor who I've just stopped thinking about it. I used to think about it all the time and I've just, it's just gone. Mm. That was like Mm. my life. It was my life. Fuck. So into it. Anyway. Matt Smith was my jam. Mm. And then he was, please. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I was really, I was just, 
sorry. Yeah. You also love magic. Disrespect. <laughs> yeah. No, I was a huge fan of David Tennant and I still am obviously, mm. but uh, Matt Smith was like very surprising and good. And I really enjoyed Karen Gillan as well and Rory. But then they, their story arc just like died in the, on its ass too. So mm. Stephen Moffat needs a big talking to by someone who can. Was it Stephen Moffat that did that? Um, Frankenstein at the beginning of the year as well. There was like a... Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I think he did. And that was the same. <gasps> the first couple of episodes were quite good and then the third episode just shat the bed completely. My package. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, it was Dracula, not Frankenstein. Is it the one that was on Netflix? Yeah. Oh, he was behind that? Yeah. I think that was a monumental disaster. Uh, yeah, like the it, the first two episodes, well, I quite enjoyed them, but the third one, it goes into the modern day again and it just completely falls apart. I watched a really interesting YouTube video about him, actually, because basically it implied that because he's married to a producer who basically who works for the BBC, it's basically like mm. he's surrounded by a bunch of yes men. And he's, while he sort of, parades himself as not being one he's quite misogynistic and chauvinistic mm, right. and stuff so yeah Stephen Moffat are you eating a mince pie <laughs> I don't even know you could get them at the moment yeah. are they out in shops they sure are <laughs> um I don't go into supermarkets anymore it's only like the shit Coles brand um so they're not mm. great oh look they make really good gluten-free ones I got overexcited and I bought them they were two dollars I forgot. I had that banana that I ate. Before. Oh, shit. They are available. And I was Ooh. like, I should probably eat more food. So this is what I had on hand. Woolies has summer berry mince pies. Yeah, they're not good. Well, that's not true. They're not They're not the same as fruit mince pies, like Christmas fruit mince pies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a fruit mince pie. I, I should just not be eating in September, but here we are. <laughs> I walked in the door and I was like, Sophie, you will not believe what I bought. And she was like, oh, God. <laughs> she was like it hasn't even been halloween i was like I no i don't care i care about it for decorations but not for fruit mince pies because they're yummy <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll let you chew that yeah <laughs> okay so we haven't released our reading list for next month yet so this is a little bit of a surprise reveal for our listeners and we're not going to tell you the titles, but our October episodes are going to be Halloween themed. Spooky. Ooh, spooky. spooky. So we've got a, <laughs> a cute little bonus that we're going to do. Um, we're going to have some novels about witches. Both of us are reading novels that are centered around witches, but for sort of different things. Uh, both of us, I mean, Tess and myself, Lockie may pick something. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. If not, he can probably just, enjoy yes. the, the movie <laughs> we're gonna yeah that's watch. right this special <laughs> themed month was set up before i joined so yeah yeah and yeah. we were we were, ne- we're not gonna let this go because we're very excited to do it so yeah yes i know i'm certainly not going to offer up a different movie because i know how committed you guys are to this particular movie we'll be watching <laughs> yes yeah so basically look forward to some spooky themed reading lists that's going to be released on the first of uh, october 
Yeah. And uh, don't forget to subscribe where you find us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter and like us on Facebook. And if you have any feedback, please email us at historicalfrictionspod at gmail.com. So thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to delving into some spooky history again next time. Until then, happy reading. Based on a real person. It was a Jewish girl who's rescued by the same man who rescues the Codex. <laughs> I don't know what that was. An email. But my email's off. Look how small!